Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Inside the Boards. I'm your host, Mariah, and today we'll be talking about alcohol addiction as part of our addiction series episodes. With me today, I have Dr. Abdullah Tahir from Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, New York. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Thahir. How are you doing today? Hey, Mariah. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you like to do in your free time, um, about some of your hobbies? Yeah, so I, I'm uh, I'm kind of an outdoorsy person. I like to go on hikes. Uh, I've recently actually taken a mountain biking. Uh, and one of my friends, uh, I went back to Colorado. One of my friends actually just took me mountain biking, and it was a blast. Um, You're from Colorado originally, right? Yeah, yeah. That's so That's so cool. How do you like New York compared to Colorado? Uh, I would say they both have their pros and cons. Colorado has a lot of uh, outdoor sp- outdoorsy places. And so that's what I like about that. But New York has a lot of, you know, a lot of different cultures, a lot of people. Uh, so I like that about New York. I agree. I feel like New York has a little bit of everything. I've never been to Colorado, but it sounds so beautiful. And I always yeah. see people skiing there and things like that. Yeah. So what else do you like to do besides outdoorsy activities? I like to just watch movies. I like uh, to read comic books. Um, That's so interesting that you read comic yeah. books. What was the last comic book that you read? Um, I'm currently actually reading uh, this series called the Sandman series. It's just it's an interesting comic book. If you're not into comics, I, it was, I wouldn't recommend it as the first uh, comic book to read. But it deals with a lot of mature topics. Um, and it's, very, it's a very interesting read. That's very cool. Um, so thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Um, do you listen to podcasts normally? Uh, yeah, uh, I do whenever I get the chance. What kind of podcast do you like listening to? Um, so obviously like medicine podcasts I listen to. Uh, one of my favorites is the, the Curbsiders. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's like a favorite of a lot of different people. Yeah. It's a really good podcast. Yeah, it's really good. And I feel like because of COVID, it's a lot easier now to get into podcasting. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think uh, I'm one of those people's whenever I'm taking a long drive, I just had the podcast on in the background, just something to listen to. It's such an easy way to get education nowadays. Yeah. So you're at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. I know that Elmhurst is where one of the biggest outbreaks happened with COVID nineteen. Were you there at that time when it took place? Yeah, I, I was. I was there. Uh, I was actually in the wards at that time. Oh, that's so crazy. Um, would you like to share any of your experiences there during COVID? Well, uh, in in general, uh, I was just amazed at how the community came together uh, in that very difficult time uh, to help you know and support the the medical community uh, and how understanding the community was at large. Uh, about like the plight and what was going on at, at the hospital. Uh, I mean, I remember we were getting um, like, you know, letters and, uh, you know, kind of food supplies, different things every day. And that just kept our spirits so high. Um, and I that's, just appreciated all that. That's so good to hear. I remember as a medical student, we would donate and uh, try to contribute as much as we could. But I'm really mm-hmm. glad that you guys were able to keep your spirits high during that very difficult time. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, of course. So today we'll be talking about alcohol addiction. And um, I know that Queens is, um, is a very diverse area. I also live in Queens right now. So could you tell us a little bit about alcohol addiction in the community and in the hospital where you work? 
So alcohol is something that, uh, or alcohol abuse and alcohol withdrawal, the very common problems that we experience at the hospital. Uh, like Elmer's Hospital is one of the, it's the only tertiary care hospital in Queens. Uh, and being uh, being where it is located, which is uh, surrounded by very different populations uh, and very crowded areas um, and having very different types of people around the hospital, uh, it, it's just interesting to see uh, some of the socioeconomic factors that lead to alcoholism uh, and alcohol addiction. Uh, and I'm just interested in, in, in factors that we can or in things that we can do to help prevent that and help treat that. So in terms of factors um, that go into alcoholism, have you noticed any that are more common, which lead to alcoholism in the community? Have you noticed any patterns or trends that lead to alcoholism? Uh, I, I think one of the major things that I see at, at the hospital is that it's usually males um, and usually males who are uh, dealing with socioeconomic issues, for example, you know, difficulties finding work uh, or, or being homeless. Those are some of the big issues. Uh, those are some of the biggest risk factors that I see uh, at the hospital. I, I agree. Um, I've also rotated at Elmhurst and those are um, the, the most common type of patient that we would get. When I was doing rotations, I noticed also that a lot of times these were the, the risk factors that you mentioned, the, the financial aspect and, and the gender um, and also the homelessness. So do you have any statistics about alcoholism in general that you would like to discuss with us today? Um, so, yeah, starting out with um, like the epidemiology, uh, how big of a factor alcoholism is in the U.S. It's, it's the third leading cause of preventable deaths in the U.S., and almost 9% of U.S. adults uh, meet the criteria for an alcohol use disorder. That's approximately 13% of those who drink alcohol. That's a crazy number. Like, that's really, really sad that we have this problem being so common in our country. Yeah, exactly. I, I actually didn't realize how a big of a uh, thing it was or big of a factor it was uh, before I started researching this. Some other uh, you know, interesting information is that uh, in, the, in the U.S., there's about 85,000 uh, deaths per year that you can attribute to alcohol use and the estimated cost of kind of the adverse effects of alcohol use are $250 billion per year in the U.S. That's crazy. Um, I feel like it's such a important topic to discuss in terms of awareness and in terms of research and um, that I'm, I'm really glad we're doing this podcast about it. And I hope that we can learn a few things today as we talk. So what other risk factors were you able to find while researching about alcoholism and alcohol abuse? Yeah, so it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty common or it's pretty well known that males are, are more at risk for alcohol abuse. Uh, and usually it's, it's the younger males from 18 to 29 years of age. It's actually more common in Native Americans and, and white, uh, white ethnicity. And it's more common if you have other uh, you know, significant or other substance use disorders Mood disorders are other risk factors, such as major depression and bipolar disorder. Uh, and personality factors also play a role, like borderline personality disorders and antisocial personality disorders are, are a higher risk for alcohol abuse. You know, something that I, uh, in, in my community, we have more, uh, more immigrant population, and that's, uh, that's who I see commonly, um, uh, who present to the hospital with alcohol abuse. Uh, but nationally, I don't think that, that that is a risk factor. Actually, in my research, it doesn't seem like immigrant communities are more at risk for alcohol abuse. Although what is a risk factor is 
or actually not a risk factor, but something that contributes to uh, the adverse effects of alcohol is socioeconomic status. So, uh, you know, being of of poor socioeconomic status doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be more likely to abuse alcohol. Lower socioeconomic classes drink less alcohol overall, but the effects, the negative effects of alcohol are more uh, are more prominent uh, in the lower socioeconomic status. And that's because of other hazardous behaviors and conditions that are associated with being, you know, being in the lower socioeconomic classes. And and that makes sense. I mean, monetarily, it makes sense. Like alcohol is expensive. Of course, it's hard to, you know, not everyone can buy it. But um, the people in the lower uh, financial brackets would have a hard time finding therapy and, and, you know, signing up for programs and rehab and things like that. So could you talk about the pathogenesis of alcoholism? Um, just like the quick bullet points. So uh, alcohol by itself, it's a, it's a depressant. So it actually activates the, the inhibitory GABA receptors in the brain and it inhibits the excitatory glutamate receptors. Um, uh, receptors. <laughs> I remember those from step studying. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, I think that the pathogenesis is somewhat unknown. I know different contributors like genetics and environmental influences also play a part in all of this. But I think there's really no, um, there's no evidence that shows the exact pathogenesis. Um, but moving forward, maybe we can do a question now. So, so a 45-year-old male presents with altered mental status to the emergency department. He appears to be suffering from both hallucinations and delusions. He also smells of alcohol. He's not able to give a reliable history, and he has no prior record of psychiatric or alcohol-related hospitalizations. There is no emergency contact available. His airway is patent, and his vital signs are normal. What is the most pressing first step in this eval? Is it A, administer IV benzos to preclude impending alcohol withdrawal, B, check ethanol levels to correlate with the patient's mental state, C, obtain CT head to rule out intracranial hemorrhage or a cerebrovascular accident. Or D, obtain a psych consult to further delineate the patient's mental health disorder. I know that's a long question, but if you were in the hospital and you had a patient like this, what do you think you would do? Okay, so the question is, is basically asking what's the, the, like the most pressing first step uh, in this evaluation. Uh, in a guy who presents with vitals that are stable but has hallucinations and delusions. The first choice is give benzodiazepines to preclude impending, uh, impending alcohol withdrawal. The reason I don't think that's the right answer is because he actually doesn't look like he's, or you can't say for sure that he's withdrawing. His vitals are stable. Um, he's not tachycardic. He does have altered mental status uh, and he smells of alcohol. You can't really say that that's withdrawal. It could be uh, alcohol intoxication. I agree. I feel like um, it's not also, I feel like it's not the most pressing. I feel like we also have to look at the other options because um, in terms of immediate interventions that you would want to do. Okay. So, and then option B is to check alcohol level to correlate with patient's mental state. Um, that could be an option, but it's not, I don't think it's the most pressing first step. I mean, we know that he's uh, he's drank alcohol because they're saying that he smells like alcohol. Uh, and the level is not necessarily the most important thing to check right now. Uh, obtain CT head to rule out intracranial hemorrhage or CVA. Um, I think I think that that that's the right option. Uh, give, uh, you know, from all those four options, 
because if if a person is presenting with altered mental status, mm-hmm, hallucination, uh, altered mental status, and hallucinations and delusions, uh, you really have to rule out a, a, a you know a pathology of the brain. And you know, just by process of elimination, also uh, obtain a psychiatric consult to further delineate the patient's mental health disorder. Um, I think that's that might happen sometime during the hospital stay for this guy, but it's not the most pressing issue right now. Just mm-hmm. just for uh, uh, there's actually it's interesting because I've actually had uh, personal experience kind of uh, similar to what this question is trying to trying to tell us. So we had this young person who came to the hospital and in the ED he actually had uh, he was intoxicated with alcohol, known history of alcohol abuse and alcohol withdrawal, in known history of alcohol withdrawal seizures. So he's a known alcoholic to the, to the ED. Uh, he came to the hospital uh, he was admitted after they noted that he had a withdrawal seizure in the ED. He got uh, benzodiazepines in the ED uh, and they admitted him uh, after that. Uh, they also got a CT head at right after, um, uh, right after the seizure, and that that was negative. So uh, we started treatment for presumed uh, alcohol withdrawal. We were actually giving him Librium, uh, you know, like a, a fixed dose, like a tapering dose of Librium. Uh, and I think the next day or the day after, we noticed that his his mental status was, you know, it was he looked like he was withdrawing. Usually, even with Librium. You know, or with alcohol withdrawal, especially if they've had a seizure or they've presented with alcohol withdrawal seizure, you notice that they require more doses of, uh, of benzodiazepines. This guy was just calm. So we, we repeated the CT head and this guy had a big stroke. That, that's just, that's interesting to me because, uh, he was just presumed to have an alcohol withdrawal seizure. Um, actually, after we consulted neurology after the second CT head that showed, uh, that he had a stroke, uh, when they looked at the first CT head, they could see that they were able to see it on the the first CT head. That's so crazy, um, and I feel like it's so important to check the head because a lot of times these patients could have fallen. You know, they, this is a very life threatening thing that could happen. That's it's crazy that you've also had like a real life experience yeah. with something like this. Yeah. I mean, it just speaks to just in general medicine. You always have to keep an open mind. You know, you can't anchor to a, a theory or a diagnosis. That's actually a big problem uh, that I've, I've seen in medicine, and that leads to a lot of misdiagnosis, you know. You could have just been, been like, oh, this guy, he's like he's sleeping. That's just because he's been getting Librium. Uh, you have to keep, you know, your options open. You have to keep assessing the patient, um, you know, given new evidence. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's great that you guys were able to find that out. So going into the diagnosis of alcoholism, how do you personally diagnose alcoholism in patients? So uh, generally, when we see, like this is uh, in a general sense that when we see patients are being admitted repeatedly to the hospital with the alcohol withdrawal and have like adverse uh, socioeconomic effects of drinking excessive alcohol, we initiate treatment for, you know, prevent further alcohol use. But, it, you know, if you're in the clinic and you're, you know, there's screening tests that you should use uh, that are recommended because a lot of times uh, people might have uh, alcohol use disorders uh, but might not be, be being admitted to the hospital with withdrawal. That's true. So in the ED, it's more noticeable, obviously, because you can you can actually see them. So how would you diagnose it in patients who are presenting in the clinic? 
what's what's recommended is to use these screening tools. For example, one of the well-known screening tests is the is the CAGE questionnaire. Um, those involve asking questions like, uh, have you tried to cut down on your alcohol use? Do you get angry when people question you about your alcohol use? Or do you feel guilty about your alcohol use? Have you used it as an eye-opener? Those kind of questions. I remember studying the CAGE, the CAGE mnemonic during step prep as well. C for um, cut down, A for angry, G for guilt, um, E for eye-opener. I believe eye-opener meant... Like drinking it in the morning, right? Yeah. Like first thing in the morning. Yeah. And and that's uh, another thing we had to know for a step as well. The, I mean, there's other other questionnaires as well. There's the audit questionnaire, which is 10 questions that you ask. Uh, and there's an abbreviated one, the audit C, uh, which only has three questions. These basically ask similar kind of questions that uh, if you, and, and if you test positive or you, uh, yeah, if you test positive for these uh, screening tests, then you should then you should go further and categorize their alcohol use, you know, because these are just screening tests. You don't they don't definitely have alcohol use disorders if they t- you know if they uh, fit in you know these criteria based on these screening tests. So based on, on if you know if you test positive, then there's there's basically four further categories that you can uh, you can place patients under. Uh, the first category is low risk alcohol use. This is usually no more than four drinks as in a single day or 14 drinks per week for men. And for females, uh, no more than three drinks a day or, or no more than seven drinks in a week. That's low-risk alcohol use. The second category is at-risk drinking. And this is when thresholds for the lower-risk alcohol use are exceeded. For example, more than like five or more drinks per day in men. Uh, and, and that would be four or more drinks per day in females. And this, if, if patients fit this category, then the treatment for that is just behavioral counseling. So the first one is low risk. Um, the second one is at-risk drinking. Mm-hmm. The other categories are harmful alcohol use. Uh, and these are patterns of drinking that cause health consequences. Treatment for this also is behavioral counseling. And then the fourth category is alcohol use disorder. And this is, uh, this is when patients fill two out of the 11 DSM-5 criteria. Uh, and when patients meet this criteria, what you should be doing is psychotherapy and initiating medications. Just to summarize, we have the low risk, which is a max of four drinks a day for men and three drinks a day for women or 14 drinks a week for men and seven drinks a week for women. And then the next one is at risk where that threshold is exceeded. The third one is harmful alcohol use, which is where there is health consequences. And the last one is where it's actually considered a psychiatric disorder um, called alcohol use disorder. So management is dependent on the categories that they're in. So let's do another question. So here we have a 20-year-old male who was brought to the ED after an accident. He is unconscious but has stable vitals. Emergency CT reveals no abnormalities. A few minutes later, he regains consciousness and appears confused. A post-ictal state is suspected. Soon, he starts getting agitated, anxious, and starts perspiring. His heart rate is 100. Blood pressure is 100 over 70. Labs show blood glucose is 60. White blood cell count is 10,000. Total bilirubin is 1. AST, ALT with the normal limits, GGT is 56. Blood smear shows a macrocytic hypochromic picture, and UA reveals nothing. 
after a detailed history, a drug addiction or abuse-based diagnosis is established. On being confronted, the patient denies an addiction and says that it's harmless and that he will try to reduce the use. What is the treatment for his drug dependence? Is it A, naloxone, B, naltrexone, C, methadone, or D, disulfiram? That's an interesting question. So this is a 20-year-old guy who's been in a car accident. And the first step is to figure out what uh, what drug are they talking about. Um, so this, the, the vignette says that he's uh, he appears confused, post-ictual state is suspected. Uh, and soon he starts getting agitated, anxious, and starts perspiring. We're also presented with certain lab values like a GGT of 56. Uh, AST is 30 and ALT is 40. A macrocytic hypochromic picture on his blood smear. So the first thing I think of when I see those uh, lab values is alcohol withdrawal. One thing that actually goes against this is the AST ALT level, but maybe they're, you know, that's they're not giving the full picture, or maybe they're not just including that to confuse some people. Uh, but uh, they're kind of giving you an alcohol withdrawal seizure and a guy who is driving, uh, and they're asking about what drug. Uh, what's the treatment for his drug dependence? I think they really like these kind of questions on step, especially because um, normally it's trying to show that after someone's been in the hospital after a certain amount of time and they haven't had access to their drug, they start to experience withdrawal symptoms. And this is like their tricky way of asking us this question or trying to figure out the drug that's responsible. So I, let's go one by one. Um, the first option is naloxone. That option is basically for it's a opioid antagonist, um, and it's it's one of the treatment options for opioid dependence, uh, and, and that that's wrong. Uh, but I guess the the question makers wanted you to be confused uh, and think that the one of the dr- the drug could be opioids. But uh, the thing is that oh, this guy came with in a post ictial state, and um, neither opioid use nor withdrawals is associated with seizures. Yeah, and I think they always mention pupils with things like opioids too. So, um, and the GGT here is is high. So I feel like alcohol is, is yeah, the exactly. main. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I think naloxone is is wrong. Now, trexone could be now trexone could be an option. That's option two. Option number three is methadone. Again, that's for opioid abuse. And then option four is disulfiram. And another thing that could be used for to treat uh, alcohol addiction. As we'll talk about in a second, naltrexone is one of the first-line options. That option is correct. Naltrexone is the answer for this guy's, for alcohol. Uh, uh, for use. his drug dependence yeah. treatment. Usually we, we like to see, uh, or I've, what I've seen is that before you prescribe any type of medication, there should be some, uh, they should admit they have a problem with alcohol. Yeah, I think that's uh, the steps into trying to change their habit needs to be discussed before they're medicated. I guess with disulfiram, it's mostly for people who want to change. And I'm not sure if it's a treatment exactly for his drug dependence. Um, I know that it, it makes them feel like they're having, having like hangover symptoms. Um, and it's normally for people who are showing motivation and commitment for alcohol abstinence. So I also think naltrexone is the right answer here. Uh, so in terms of uh, medications... I'll talk about naltrexone first. Uh, so it's it's actually a first-line agent. It's a pure opioid antagonist. And the way that, that it works is that it possibly reduces the reward sensation that is associated with uh, alcohol abuse. 
So and it's um, it's associated with a substantial decrease in 30 day admissions and ED visits if you prescribe it at the time of discharge. It's it's actually contraindicated in acute hepatitis or liver failure. Uh, so you can't give it in patients who have cirrhosis. So and, and that actually might limit it. It's used in certain patient populations, and also you cannot use it in in, in patients who are also abusing opioids because it's a a pure opioid antagonist. Another thing to keep a lookout for is that it uh, that you're supposed to be very cautious if you're using it in patients with depression, as it might increase um, as it might increase suicide ideation. Now, Trexone actually um, the evidence that that has shown is that it reduces short-term heavy drinking by around eighty percent. In the studies that they've done, it hasn't actually showed to increase abstinence. That's just like a, a small caveat to its use. So if someone had cirrhosis or hepatitis, what would be an alternative to naltrexone then for them? Just to keep them in order, naltrexone reduces cravings. And then the alternate for that in a patient who has liver issues. So the the next drug that we can talk about is a camprosate. And this drug actually works through NMDA receptors to modulate GABA and glutamate receptors. And this is the drug that if a person had, uh, you know, liver failure or cirrhosis, this is the drug you would use. The reason it's not like, uh, it's not preferred over naltrexone is because it's TID dosing and it's just as compared to naltrexone, which is oral like daily dosing, or you can actually use it injectable long acting um, formulation is also available. Uh, a camprosate is something that you would use in somebody with liver failure. Another thing with acamprosate is that it's it's actually contraindicated in patients with renal failure. We give naltrexone for people with renal failure and we give acamprosate for people with liver failure. Yeah. What other medications could we use? So the uh, another drug is disulfiram. Quickly about its mechanism of action that it uh, inhibits acetaldehyde dehydrogenase and causes buildup of aldehyde after you drink alcohol. And this buildup is associated with uh, and an adverse reaction like nausea, vomiting, flushing, and tachycardia. The the difference between uh, disulfiram and the other two options I talked about before is that it does not actually decrease the motivation to drink, but it just causes that adverse reaction that might make you averse to drinking further. But it actually does improve short-term abstinence by a factor of four. The thing with the disulfiram is that it acquires high motivation uh, and supervision. Uh, again, that was one of the options in our question. The reason I think that that was wrong was because this guy didn't even know that he was he had a problem. Uh, and so he's definitely not going to take something that, that made him feel bad. Yeah, he was saying that his addiction was harmless. So that was a big sign that disulfiram wouldn't have been effective. Um, okay, awesome. And then I believe two other treatments are topiramate and gabapentin for patients who normally can't tolerate the other medications. Is there anything else you'd like to add in terms of treatment? Yeah, I mean, the, the big three are, are, are the one that I talked about. Topiramate and gabapentin, those are being studied right now, and I have seen them being used in the hospital, actually, but they still need some more studies before they can be recommended as you know initial or first-line treatment options. Okay. Uh, so that's the, the medication side, side of the treatment for alcohol dependence. So not now talking about like cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, that's one option that can that, that can be used. Another thing that has shown uh, you know a lot of improvement or a lot of 
effectiveness is things like Alcohol Anonymous. And, and these are actually, uh, and these have recently, actually, uh, just last year, there came out, came out a Cochrane review. Therapies like Alcohol, Alcohol Anonymous or AA is actually much more effective than just cognitive behavioral therapy even. If, if you don't know about Cochrane Review, it's just this organization that has a very high threshold before giving recommendations. And so it's kind of like the gold standard in terms of uh, like recommendations or uh, coming out with statements about certain things. And so they recently came out with a statement saying that AA results in more, resulted in more alcoholics being abstinent and for longer periods of time than some other treatments. So uh, when comparing AA to other interventions, 12-month follow-ups, they showed that AA was associated with 42% abstinence rate uh, compared to 35% abstinence uh, using non-AA interventions. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. So I'm glad that they're doing research and studies on this because it's probably cheaper and it's easier for the patients to uh, stick to things like this, maybe instead of the medications. Yeah, but actually, Um, well, I mean... So this would be most effective if, if you combine therapies like this with medications. But actually, that's one of the things that they showed was that AA is a lot more cost effective than uh, something like cognitive behavioral therapy. And so aside from um, this psycho- psychosocial support and medications, we always learn that Vitamin supplementation is very imperative in um, individuals who have alcohol dependence, like thymine, which is vitamin B1, um, paradoxin, which is B6, hydroxycobalamin, which is B12, and folic acid. I know that um, I had to memorize all those for my step exam. Um, And so this was all very, very helpful and informative about alcohol dependence. Now we can shift gears and talk about alcohol withdrawal instead. So alcohol withdrawal, it's basically classified into four different stages. The way this happens is because in individuals who are, who are chronically abusing alcohol, their GABA receptors have been downregulated and their glutamate receptors have been upregulated. And so in, the, in these patients uh, with these changes in the, these neurotransmitters, when they suddenly stop drinking alcohol, they have these neurotransmitters are not being affected by alcohol. And so you have all these excitatory glutamate receptors that are there not being affected by alcohol. And so what results is both in the central nervous system and in the autonomic nervous system, uh, like a very excited state of the body where you have things All like, of like the excitatory yeah. neurotransmitters being activated. Yeah, that's basically right? both in your central nervous system and in the autonomic nervous system. Uh, it becomes very active. Uh, and so you have like the four major alcohol withdrawal states or categories. The first and the mildest is a minor withdrawal. This usually starts between 6 to 24 hours after the last drink, but can last for about a week. And this 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 type of symptoms or this minor alcohol withdrawal will not usually start after 24 hours. And then... Could we talk about the symptoms that occur in minor withdrawal? Yeah, so um, minor withdrawal is just associated with you know things like tremor, uh, insomnia, anxiety, palpitations, sweating, gastrointestinal um, issues like diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, uh, headache, um, that kind of stuff. Okay, and then so that's minor withdrawal. What would be the next 
um, phase. So the, the next uh, the next thing is uh, that usually occurs uh, is alcohol hallucinations, and that, that can actually uh, it's common that patients would start out with minor withdrawal and then progress to alcohol hallucinations, and then if it's really severe, they'll progress to the other stages. It, it would be uh, rare for them to not have experienced minor withdrawal and then just all of a sudden experience alcoholic hallucinations, uh, but it is possible. So usually alcoholic hallucinations, they start 12 to 24 hours after the last drink, um, and these can be visual, tactile, um, and these are actually without confusion. Patients can actually tell you like, hey, I'm, I'm experiencing hallucinations, and I know that they're not there, as opposed to other forms of hallucinations where patients are not aware uh, that they're hallucinating. Uh, they might think that those things are actually real. But in alcohol withdrawal, it's that's different. They actually know that that's not there in front of them. I know the board likes this. So, how would their vital signs present? You know, in, the, in just hallucinations, it would be usually normal vital signs. They won't have autonomic instability. They might have some tachycardia, but usually, like things like hypotension, things like that, usually they're not seen. I, yeah, and I bring that up because I know um, on boards sometimes they like to be very. Um, tricky. And there's another phase in this, which is kind of similar to alcoholic hallucinosis, which is delirium tremens. But in that stage, the vitals are abnormal. So that's just something to keep in mind. Yeah. So usually along with alcoholic hallucinations, I like to combine alcoholic hallucinations with uh, withdrawal seizures, because you'll kind of see these two things happen during the same time frame of alcohol withdrawal. Uh, this also uh, happens around 12 to 48 hours, uh, around the same time that you, you expect the patient to have alcoholic hallucinations. Uh, and these uh, seizures are, are brief uh, and uh, usually tonic-clonic seizures, um, and they have a short postictal state. Uh, a prolonged seizure would, should make you think of other things. Okay, so so far we have minor withdrawal, alcoholic hallucinations, and withdrawal seizures as three of the four different phases that occur. Do you have anything to add on to those before we talk about the last one? Um, I, I think I, I mentioned uh, everything that I wanted to. The most serious phase is, like you said, delirium tremens. Uh, and this can happen usually, or this usually happens around 48 to 96 hours. Um, that's when it starts. It can actually last for very long, for about a week or even more, actually. And, and most people will actually experience other withdrawal, like minor withdrawal, alcoholic hallucinations, and withdrawal seizures before they actually go on to have delirium tremens. It would be very rare for them, for patients, to have no symptoms for two days and all of a sudden on the third day start having delirium tremens. So there's kind of a lead up to have delirium tremens. And, and, and this again is altered mental status and autonomic instability, which can involve either hypertension, hypotension. Uh, tachycardia, anxiety, sweating, but also uh, mental status changes. They'll be disoriented and be confused. And what are some risk factors for uh, delirium tremens? History of delirium tremens is a big one. Age more than 30. Actually, symptoms having symptoms of alcohol withdrawal while you have uh, blood alcohol levels uh, still high is another uh, predictor of that this person will go into delirium tremens. And actually, delirium tremens, even now, even with all the treatments that we have for alcohol withdrawal, has a 5% mortality. That's very informative. Thank you so much for talking about that. So let me see if we have another question. 
Okay, so the question we have here is, 35-year-old hospitalized man is evaluated for confusion. He was admitted three days ago after a car accident in which he was a passenger. He was receiving IV morphine for pain. This morning, the patient was agitated and disruptive, and he was talking to people who weren't present. His temperature was 100, blood pressure was 170 over 100, pulse is 120, and respirations are 23. His pulse ox was 96 on room air. He was diaphoretic and tremulous, and he was trying to pull out his IV lines. He wasn't cooperative for a fundoscopic exam, but his pupils were reactive and equal bilaterally. Which of the following would be the most appropriate treatment for this patient? Is it A, methadone, B, lamotrigine, C, lorazepam, or D, haloperidol? So that kind of fits into our delirium tremens um, category, I believe. I think this question is asking the most appropriate treatment for delirium tremens. Yeah, so like I was talking about alcohol withdrawal, it's just weird that somebody would, out of nowhere, three days after being admitted, start having with like uh, delirium tremens. But it's, it's not unheard of. And I think that's what this question is trying to get get at, is this guy... After being admitted for three days, he's having altered mental status and hemodynamic changes that is most likely because of delirium tremens. And so the most appropriate treatment uh, based on the, the, the ones that are offered is, uh, is lorazepam. Uh, methadone uh, is not one of the treatment options for alcohol withdrawal. Uh, neither is lamotrigine. And then haloperidol is, is also not going to have any effect on alcohol withdrawal. There is an indication to use a Haldol, but th that might be, there's something called non-alcoholic-related uh, delirium, and that usually happens you know, as a result of alcohol withdrawal treatment. Uh, usually when patients have been in the hospital for a while getting treatment for alcohol withdrawal, they've been getting a lot of benzos, uh, they have a lot of sleep deprivation, uh, and just being in the hospital, maybe in the ICU, these are all factors that can cause delirium uh, in a person. And so uh, if if you suspect that a person has non-alcoholic-related delirium, then you can prescribe haloperidol. Uh, other options would be clonidine or guanfacine. Um, usually those are given at night to promote the sleep-wake cycle. But in this individual who's presenting with uh, what we think is delirium tremens, the treatment will be uh, benzodiazepine. Uh, so I would choose lorazepam. I agree with everything. Um, the anticonvulsant wouldn't be effective here. And another thing, even if someone is having alcohol withdrawal seizures, we still prefer benzos over anticonvulsants because they're actually more effective. So lamotrigine here would not help. Methadone, we already talked about. Haloperidol as well. So that leaves lorazepam, which is a benzo. Um, and one thing about lorazepam that they like testing for boards is that it is preferred in people who have a liver dysfunction because it's not metabolized by the liver. And lorazepam, oxazepam, and temazepam, I believe, are the three that aren't metabolized for the liver. So they're, they're useful for patients who have liver problems. And aside from, um, if, aside from this question, if, if someone presented with delirium tremens, what would be the treatment? Just a quick rundown list of things you would give them. Yeah, so in terms of treatment for alcohol withdrawal, 
general treatments would be, you know, giving them IV fluids, giving them folic acid, thiamine, and then, uh, then also treating the alcohol withdrawal itself. Uh, so you can do that either with benzos or barbs. Overall, there's actually two different approaches to treating alcohol withdrawal. Uh, one is symptom-triggered therapy. This is when you only give benzos or bar- barbiturates when patients have symptoms of alcohol withdrawal, um, as opposed to the, the other, other method is a fixed schedule therapy. Uh, this is when you put a patient on a fixed dose of a benzo or, or a barbiturate, and you decrease that over time. So over the, over the course of four days, you'll give them less and less benzos or barbiturates uh, and kind of taper them, and that, that's the second treatment option. In between uh, these two options, the, the one that is, uh, uh, is supported uh, as uh, the better option that actually leads to shorter hospital stays is the symptom-triggered therapy because every patient is different. You don't know how much benzos or barbiturates these patients will need uh, during the hospital course. Um, and so you have to, it's, uh, the symptom-triggered therapy is a way to individualize that for every patient. And so you would give them, whenever these patients have symptoms, uh, you would give them a medication. One way that is commonly used, especially at our hospital, is that we, uh, we check the SIVA, uh, which is basically a scoring system to determine how severe the withdrawal is. And you know, based on if we use the SIVA greater than 8, if the SIVA score is greater than 8, then we say, okay, this person should be getting uh, a dose of benzos or barbiturates. So that, that's, that's something about uh, the treatment for alcohol withdrawal. And just in case people don't know what SIWA is, so it's a list of symptoms, and if the patient has them, they get assigned a point. So the SIWA stands for the Clinical Institute of Withdrawal Assessments for Alcohol. Um, this is a scale with 10 items that they're each evaluated independently and then added up to get a score that correlates with the severity of the alcohol withdrawal. So the different types of symptoms are if the person has nausea or vomiting, tremors, agitation, etc. And then in the end, we would assess based on those questions whether or not um, or what, what kind of therapy they should be administered. So in terms of uh, which, which one is preferred, benzos or barbiturates, a lot of people are more comfortable with using benzodiazepines. And, and the thing with benzos is that they act on the GABA receptors only, whereas uh, phenobarbital, the barbiturates, they act on both the GABA and the glutamate receptors. So they're actually more effective at uh, treating alcohol withdrawal, but a lot of people are not as comfortable using barbiturates, uh, even though their safety profile is is also pretty good, and you can actually calculate how much uh, phenobarb you're giving and, and stop giving phenobarb before they get to that respiratory depression. Still, I think there's a like the, it's the, the problem is that a lot of uh, hospitals have a culture where they uh, give um, benzos first and then hold off phenobarb and barbiturates until the more severe alcohol withdrawal is there. So that usually what, what happens is that in, in some hospitals, They'll start out giving benzo, something like short-acting like Ativan. And then once they notice that patients are not responding, they'll, they'll escalate to phenobarb. Okay, thank you so much. That was so informative. Um, before we end this episode, I just want to mention a few complications that can be associated with alcohol abuse. I believe the main ones that we focus on are things like Wernicke-Korsakoff, 
um, megaloblastic anemia, alcoholic cerebellar degeneration. Um, and we also have some other ones like pancreatitis, cirrhosis, um, gastritis, um, Mallory-Wise, and things like that. Quite a few complications that would take way too long, I think, for this podcast. But just for completion's sake, I wanted to mention some. Thank you so much, Dr. Thaher. Do you have anything else to talk about today? So I, I think we, we kind of hit all the major points for alcohol abuse and alcohol withdrawal. It's just a you know, very broad topic, and there's a lot of uh, research going on about what therapies are most effective and in you know, helping long-term abstinence. Uh, and I think it's a very or it's an evolving field um, and, and very, very interesting uh, topics to discuss. It was a pleasure uh, being here with you. This was a very knowledgeable podcast. I learned a lot of stuff today, and I hope our listeners did as well. Thank you for having me, Mariah. And for our listeners, if anyone would like to get involved in podcasting or being a guest, you can always reach out to us on social media or our website, insidetheboards.com. Thank you, everyone. 